Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you. I am honored to be here. Um, I did not expect to be up here this soon, I'll be honest. Um, as Pastor Josh said, this is actually just our second week um, being a part of Prince as a church. Um, so we've just kind of gotten over here, jumped in, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, serving and growing here as a family. Um, and I kind of knew, I think in the back of my mind, I knew sooner or later Pastor Josh would ask me to, to be up here, you know, and just um, get a chance to share my heart with you, have a chance for you to get to know me a little bit, because I don't get to come in contact with all of you. But this was a little bit quicker than I anticipated. Uh, Pastor Josh called me and he said, hey, uh, you want to preach on, on the 14th? And that was not quite two weeks ago. Um, I said, sure. What I did not know was who was preaching on the 7th. Um, <laughs> So he's probably tired, sure, but I don't think that's the real reason. Um, you know, who, who wants to have to follow Brother Bill Ricketts? And then, but it's funny, that's a joke, right? It's, it's just funny, and, except that as I was preparing, um, I've, I've spoken quite a bit. I enjoy this. This is a passion of mine. Um, I don't really get nervous anymore. That happened for a long time, but, but those kinds of things are gone. And um, as I was preparing, though, that, kind of kept coming up in the back of my mind. The, the, the legacy that's in front of me, uh, you're not really, not really worthy of that, you know? Um, but that's not what this is about, right? And it's been really, really cool for the Lord to just remind me as I've been preparing and I've been praying that this time actually has nothing to do with me. A lot of people have joked around with me this morning that uh, this message, this sermon is gonna be the representation of the school for the next 10 years or something to that effect. Uh, may or may not be true, but this really, this time is not about the school. It's not about me. This time is about what the Lord wants to say to us and whether or not we're going to be faithful to hear and to do what that is. Um, so I'm, I'm excited. I'm honored to do this as I was preparing. Uh, I got really excited and uh, my outline just kind of grew and it kind of grew kind of grew. So if you've been around pastors or preachers very much, you know that that means that's a problem if you have lunch plans. Um, so I, if, if you're late, you know, you can tell your family it's my fault. I apologize, but hopefully that won't be an issue. Um, but I'm very, very excited, very honored to speak this morning. And I actually, uh, I know Pastor Josh just prayed, but I would love to, um, to just bow our heads and, and pray again before we open up with the word, if that's okay. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you that, that your mercies are new every morning and, and that we wake up and we breathe and, and we breathe in your grace again. God, that it is there and it is waiting on us every single time. And that in Christ, you have drawn us near and you continue to pour out your grace and your mercy on us. God, as we open the word this morning, just let us be changed by that. Don't just let it go over our heads or in one ear and out another, but let it wash over us and, and change us this morning. God, that is our heart, that is our desire, and that is our prayer. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, if you guys want to go ahead and turn, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, um, starting in verse 31, and, and we'll get there in just a second. Uh, I want to give you a little bit of background, a little context as to why this is what we're going to talk about this morning and how we're going to go about it. Um, so you can flip there and, and just hold your spot. 
um, as I was preparing and praying, this is what the Lord really put on my heart and has just offered me confirmation over the last almost two weeks. And this is really what he has for us today. This is something that he wants to communicate. He wants us to, to really take to heart. Um, and we're going to go through this a way that I like to go through reading scripture and making sense of it. Um, what I like to do is I like to ask three questions of the passage. And they're, they're simple questions. They're not difficult. And the more we know, the more we learn, the, the deeper we can go with our answers. But the questions themselves are very, very basic. Okay, and it's three questions. It's what, so what, and now what? And it's funny, the way that I, I kind of stumbled upon this approach, um, it's my finest hour and also my like least finest hour wrapped up in one. So um, I will share it with you so you can be impressed and also embarrassed at the same time with me. Um, uh, in college, I worked at a summer camp. And as a part of this camp, I was a counselor for a few summers. And then my last summer there, I was a director. And so I had the honor and privilege of coming up with like our Bible curriculum and leading just all the day-to-day -day stuff. It was, it was really good. And um, one of the things that we would do is we would play a bunch of games and then we would try to use everything we could to teach a lesson. We didn't want to waste any moments, right? Uh, we had the kids for a week at a time and we didn't want to just send them home without making an impact. So we would try to make everything into some sort of a lesson. Um, and the year that I became the director of, of one of the age groups, uh, we had, I was tasked to make it more exciting. So this age group, I guess the, the games, the things just hadn't been a whole, whole lot of fun for them. So my task was to make it more exciting. And so that's what we set out to do. And we, we created a game. Okay, we created a game, it was called Canyon Run. It sounds complicated, it's not. We made a little path up a hill, and the kids ran up it and got pelted with dodgeballs. That's, that's what we did. Um, and the goal was, there were multiple teams going at a time, and whoever could get to the top with the most kids from your team, that's, that's who won. It was not complicated. It gave their counselors a chance to peg them with dodgeballs. Everybody loved it. Um, and 10 weeks, zero injuries. It was a miracle. We had a kid get injured hearing the instructions one time, okay? But nobody got injured during the game. It was, it was absolutely a miracle, and they loved it. It was an absolute hit. And so we would break these games down at the end. We would, we would talk through the games. And this game had no, this game, some of the games really had like a real team-building purpose. The purpose of this game was to like get hit with dodgeballs. That was it. Uh, but we would break the game down anyway. We would ask them three questions. We'd say, what, so what, and now what? And we sat the kids down after playing this game one time, and we said, what happened? What were the rules? Tell me the rules of the game. Tell me what you saw. And they would, they would talk about the game and, and when they dodged a ball because they thought it was so cool or, you know, when they got hit in the face or, or whatever. And uh, and we say, okay, so, so what worked? What was your, did you have a strategy? And they would start telling of, of the strategies that they came up with. And one kid said, hey, you know, I realized that if, if I went in front and my team followed behind, I might get hit, but then they could all make it to the top. Because everybody was trying to hit me and then they would, they would go. And they would say, okay, so, so what? What does that mean for you? And then one kid raised his hand and said, it's, it's, it's kind of like, like in the book of John. 
where Jesus tells them that greater love has no man than this than to give up his life for his friend. And so I would go in front and I would get hit with the dodgeball and I would take that sacrifice and I would let them make it to the finish line. I thought, you got that from that game? Unintended purpose, right? God is always working behind the scenes. But it was amazing to me that he got that from a game. And then I realized that we'd been doing them a disservice in our Bible times because we didn't ask them that question. We would take the story of Joshua and say, hey, what happened? Oh, Joshua was courageous. Now you go and be courageous. Story of Moses, what happened? Moses was a leader. Now you go and, and, and be a leader. Cain and Abel, what happened? Cain was a murderer. So, okay, now, now what? Now go and don't be a murderer. Had to sidestep a landmine, right? And we missed something. We never asked, so what? What does it matter? What does it mean? What does it tell me about God? What does it tell me about myself? What does it tell me about my relationship to him? We never asked those questions. But when we asked it of a silly game, an eight-year-old could quote the book of John. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to ask those questions of a really short passage. If you'll flip to Mark chapter 8, we're going to ask these questions. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. So then Jesus begins to talk and he says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That's a little bit harsh, it feels like. To me, it feels over the top, and I know Jesus is not, but it, it kind of feels like that, right? And it had to change the relationship dynamic of, of Peter and Jesus. I, their friendship had to be a little bit different after that. But I think that Jesus meant what he said. I don't think he's exaggerating. I think that he means what he says when he says this to Peter, and there's a reason for that. Let's look at what's happening in this. Okay, let's look at the what part of the passage. What is he saying? What is it, right? And Jesus comes and he says, it says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. He's not teaching them that he is the Son of Man. Because they already know that. It was Jesus' favorite title for himself. He uses that title for himself 69 times in the Gospels. So if you spend any time around Jesus, you know he's the Son of Man. That's undeniable. What he's teaching them is that the Son of Man must suffer. And Peter's not really on board with that in the moment. And that's difficult for me to understand because I've, I've always grown up knowing the story with the end in mind, right? I've got 20-20 vision and it really, really helps. But what's going on here is when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, 
He's referring to a passage in Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel has these visions of, of God. He sees the ancient of days is what it says. He sees the ancient of days. It says he kept looking, and with the clouds of heaven, he saw one like a son of man coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given glory and dominion and a kingdom, and all peoples of every nation and language would serve him, and his kingdom or dominion would be everlasting and never pass away. So a couple verses before when Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, this is what he has in mind. He has in mind an everlasting kingdom of peace that will never pass away that Jesus is going to bring. And what Jesus does here in this moment is he connects him to something else. He connects him to another prophecy in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 53. It's called the suffering servant. And it says, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like no one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And this is what Jesus is saying. He says, you want to declare me king and you want to crown me and you want to call me the son of man in Daniel 7 and I am him. But you're not willing to accept that I'm the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. But I am them. I am both of them. The Messiah is both of these. And Peter wants something that fits his own agenda. Peter wants something that serves him well. Because if Jesus is just going to take a throne and Jesus is just going to be king, then he gets to have the debate as to whether or not I get to sit on the right or the left side of him. But either way, Peter's future is looking pretty good if Jesus is going to sit on a throne. But that's not what this is because Jesus is not giving Peter an easy answer for an easy faith. He's giving him a difficult answer and he's calling him to trust even though he doesn't see the end. He doesn't know how this plays out. He's calling him to trust even when it's difficult. And then I love it. Peter pulls, Peter pulls him aside like he's about to counsel Jesus on his decisions. Um, and we see this. We watch this happen and it's so it's so dumb, it's funny, right? It's comical to watch Peter try to tell Jesus what's best for Jesus' life. But how often do we do that? How often do we try to tell Jesus how he gets to show up in our life, when and by what terms, so that it doesn't complicate what we have figured out for our own life? It's not that much different than the way we tend to go about our lives. But this is what happens here. So Peter pulls him aside <clears throat> to try to counsel him, and, and, and Jesus rebukes him. Because we don't get to make a habit of telling God what he's supposed to do. Because as long as we think that we are in charge, as long as we think that we get to decide how things are supposed to go, 
we will never truly surrender our life to Jesus. And Jesus is about to call Peter and the disciples to do something radical here in a moment. And this is the prep work. He's got to get them ready to be able to do this. And so he has to get Peter to set aside the idea of being in charge and being in control. Peter doesn't get to decide, Jesus decides. And with that in mind, he moves forward. And so if you pick back up in verse 34, it said, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And what I want to look at here is Jesus' call to his disciples that I think extends beyond and extends to us. And it's the call to take up our cross and follow. And what does he mean by that? The disciples took this very literally. If you want proof, look at their life. Multiple of them ended up on a cross. Okay, they didn't, they didn't make it a metaphor. They didn't make it an allegory. They, they took Jesus at his word. And they followed him all the way to a similar fate. But for us, that's not really the world that we live in, right? Persecution exists, but it certainly looks different. I don't know that anybody still uses a cross as a form of it. So what does it mean? What does Jesus actually say? Some of the disciples ended up on a cross. Some of them didn't. But they were all faithful to the end. Except for one. Right? So, so what, does, what does it mean? What is Jesus getting at here? What does he mean by taking up our cross? See, the cross for them made a lot of sense because it was something very common. They saw crosses everywhere. We see crosses everywhere, but it looks a little bit different, right? It's in Hobby Lobby about like what you're going to put in your family room, right? What you're going to hang on the wall and what you're going to buy to craft with. For them, a cross was a symbol of execution. It was a symbol of brutality, and it was all over the place. And every single person who ended up on a cross had an identity and an agenda that went against Rome. They refused to bow to Caesar and say, I'm a servant of Caesar. And they refused to cooperate. They wanted to do something else. Every single person that ended up on a cross had an identity and agenda that was different from what Caesar and Rome wanted. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's calling them to have a new identity and a new agenda. He wants something new for them. That's what it means to take up your cross. You don't have to make a metaphor out of it. You don't have to seek out persecution. You just have to have a new identity and a new agenda 
in Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. A new identity, a life hidden in Christ with God, and a new agenda. Seek the things that are above. This is what it means to take up your cross and to follow. Is to have an entirely new identity and an entirely new agenda that lines up with the one that Jesus has for your life. But if you've been following Jesus for longer than about 10 seconds, you know that when you choose to follow, everything doesn't just seem to fall into place. Everything doesn't just start working out perfectly and everything is all rosy. Things are still tough. Things are still difficult. And then we have to come back and we say, okay, I know what Jesus is calling me here, calling me to here, right? I know the what of the question, but now of the the situation, but I'm going to ask another question. I'm going to say, so what? So what does this look like for me? Why does this matter? Or maybe it's another question, and this is where I really want to sit for the last bit of time we have together. Is it actually worth it? I think that every single person that follows Jesus asks this question in their life at least once. Is it actually worth it? When life gets tough, things don't go the way we expected. This is the question that brings about a crisis of faith. Or sometimes it's not that something goes wrong, it's just that we're a little, you know, we're a little disillusioned. We thought we would feel differently now that we've become a follower, and yet every day still kind of feels a little bit the same, right? A couple weeks ago, we celebrated July 4th, and uh, we did something new with our kids, or with our oldest kid. He's, he's three years old, and, and we took him to a fireworks show. Um, this was a disaster waiting to happen. Um, it was me and my wife, our three-year-old, my brother-in-law, sister-in-law, and their two-and-a-half-year-old. And we took them to a fireworks show. Um, and so we drove there. We, we parked in a parking lot with a 1,000 of our closest friends. And um, I realized pretty quickly, like, we're in for the long haul. There's no way out. We are trapped for the duration of this thing. We, we brought a training toilet for the potty training kit. It, we were anchored, right? This was going to happen. Um, but we, we were nervous. We had no clue how it was going to play out. And so we're, we're just sitting there waiting on the fireworks show to happen, and, and it's getting ready. We're watching the clock, and we're kind of building up, and then we hear the first one go up, right? The and you're just waiting. Everybody's frozen, and I'm watching, my, I'm watching my son, and I'm like, oh, no. Please don't throw a tantrum right now. Please, 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 please. And it explodes, and he loved it. I was like, that, that is my son. Uh, it's really cool, though, to see. I mean, it's just a firework, but to see the awe, like, in a kid over something so new, it felt like I was watching fireworks for the first time. It was really, really cool. And uh, this goes on. But, you know, the fireworks show isn't 30 seconds long. It's 30 minutes. 
And after about five minutes or so, he just kind of stopped paying all that much attention. And he he'd brought some dinosaur toys, so he goes back to his dinosaur toys. And I said, Luke, Luke, do you still like the fireworks? I said, yeah, Daddy. And he'd look back at him, and he'd keep playing. And every five minutes or so, he'd look back over his shoulder and, and watch some of the fireworks. But they just kind of wore off. It lost its appeal, if you will. And it was kind of in that moment that I felt like the Lord just kind of grabbed me and he said, this is what happens far too often. It's not always that there's a tragedy, although those happen. It's not always that we can't intellectually wrap our mind around the existence of a God who created everything, although sometimes people struggle with that. Just get, people just get bored and tired. And they stop letting themselves be amazed by a God who would take on their sin and their shame. And they just go back to what they were doing before. And if you ask them, hey, do you still like Jesus? They're going to say yes. People rarely say no to that question. Even people that don't believe and trust in Jesus will rarely say, I don't like him. You're almost always going to get a yes. And they might even look back over their shoulder to see a, a really good thing happening once or twice. But it's not their focus. It's certainly not their agenda anymore. They don't really think it matters. So I think we have to answer this question. And I felt kind of arrogant asking the question, like, is it worth it? Does it matter? The answer is yes, by the way, if you're waiting. Spoiler alert, the answer is yes. But it feels wrong to ask that question a little bit, doesn't it? It feels really wrong to ask it from this stage. Until I opened up Psalm 73. And the psalmist wrestles with the same idea. And he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Things just aren't going the way that he thought they would. And in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And the psalmist feels like it's not worth it. And we'll see at the end of the psalm in a little bit, he knows better, and that's part of what keeps him anchored, but he feels in the moment as he writes it as as if it's not actually worth it. And so I want to give you just a few things of why I think this is really worth it, okay? The first one is that he is God and he is good. Jesus equates the call to follow with who he is. So the way we answer this question is really just figuring out what we can about Jesus, right? He is God and he is good. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. He is God and he is good. 
most of the time that I meet a student or a person who struggles with faith, who struggles to, to buy into this God thing, this Jesus thing, this Bible thing, most of the time their issue is with the goodness of God. So why don't you believe in God? Well, I just don't believe in a God who could create everything. Well, okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the plausibility of existence. Let's run down all these roads. And we kind of satisfy these questions. Like, well, I just don't believe in a God who, who would let bad things happen. And now that's a, that's a character judgment. That's, that's not a power issue. It's not a, that's a character judgment. Sooner or later, you push far enough Say, if God is real, then why do I have fill in the blank? It's a character judgment on God. That they fail to see the goodness of God. It's the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. The serpent comes and and says, did he really say all this? No, 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 no. See, here's the thing. He knows that you'll be like him. And they came to believe the lie that God was holding out on them. That there was a better version of life available. One that was bigger, better, and more free if they would just take control. And the very first sin bought the lie that God was holding out on them and he wasn't really as good as they thought he was. And that life following him was not as good as they thought it would be. And I think what we need to believe and to take to heart most of the time, God is bigger than you can imagine. Obviously, we can't wrap our minds around an infinite God, but God is better than you can imagine. God is infinitely better. Whatever you can picture as the best of the best, he is still better. And that makes it all worth it makes it all worth it. The second thing I want to say is that he won't leave you. God will not leave you. I don't know the best way to answer all the questions as to why problems and bad things exist in the world. I have answers to them. They may not be the best, but I have them. But I think what we need to know every time we ask the question, well, if God is really there and God is really powerful, then where was he when this happened? The answer is he was right next to you. He was with you in it. He was with you in it. Psalm 73, the psalmist was wrestling with that question, right? Is it, is it worth it? Listen to his own answer. So when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until, until I came into the sanctuary of God, until I was near to him, until I came into his presence, and then I perceived therein. And then at the very end of the psalm, he says, but as for me, the nearness of my God is my good. God does not leave you when the the newness of following Jesus wears off, when the difficulty of life and the stress of life, which I have two kids, three and under, I know the stress of life, um, I'm in it with you. When all of that stuff sets in, God is right there with you. 
He hasn't left you alone. And in those moments, he doesn't just want to stand there and watch. He wants to be there for you. Hebrews chapter 6, 19 says that he is the anchor for your soul. I would say he's the only thing that can anchor your soul. And an anchor is interesting. You know, when I, when I think of an anchor, I think of something that's restrictive. I think of something that doesn't let you go. That's the wrong mentality. An anchor doesn't prevent you from doing anything. An anchor prevents everything else from coming against you and taking you away. It prevents the wind and the waves. It prevents the, stri- the trials and the struggles and the difficulty and the stress of life from sinking you. That's what an anchor does. And the Bible says that he is the anchor for our soul in those moments. He does not leave you. He also will not leave you the same. It's weird to me. It's weird to me that Jesus says, I came to give life and life abundantly, right? The abundant life that Pastor Josh spoke of just a second ago. It's weird to me that Jesus says, I came to give life and give it abundantly. And then he says, hey, now give me your life. It seems, it seems like a contradiction. It's not, but it seems like it. But that's not what he's saying. What he's actually saying is surrender your brokenness and I will make you whole. Surrender your broken life and I'll give you the abundant life. He's not asking you to surrender the life that he has for you. He's asking you to surrender your old life so that he can give you a new one. He does not want to leave you the same. Colossians chapter 3 again says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. God is making you new. He is changing you. He has not only not left you, but his desire is to not leave you as you are. How do you know that it's worth it? Because he's making it that. In the process, in the difficulty, he is making you into something better, even if you do not see it. And the final thing that I want to say of why it's all worth it, if none of that resonates, if none of that clicks, is it really worth it? The tomb was empty on Sunday. And that means that one day yours will be too. And that makes everything worth it. All of it. Jesus, amen. Jesus did not stay in there and he did not set things up so that you have to stay there too. He has bought an eternal life for you. And that makes everything worth it. And so what we're actually left with now is we're left with the third question. Now what? Now what do we do with that? I know what he said. I know what it means for me. So now what? That's the answer to that question is what the next six days of your week will answer. 
what do you do with a God that loves so much that he will pay for your sins and give you a new life? What is that new life going to look like? That's the now what. And we don't answer that in here. We answer that when we walk out of here. Live a life worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ. So what I want, I'm going to do now is we're going we're to transition just into a little bit of a time of, of response. I want, I want you to respond however the Lord leads you. But worship at its core is a response to who God is and what he's done. And so as we've looked in the word at, at who Jesus is and what he's done, what I want to do now is I want to offer a time to respond. Okay? I want to offer a time to respond and, and there will be pastors down front and prayer partners down front. I encourage you, um, if you would like to be prayed for, if you would like to share some of the difficulty and the struggle that you have with somebody, there are people that would love to speak with you, love to talk with you, love to pray with you. But the best thing you can do, wherever you sit, however you choose to physically do this, respond to what God is doing in your life. Because that is what it means to truly worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for sending your son. Thank you for, for being pierced for our transgressions. Thank you for taking something as as brutal and as painful as a, as a cross and calling it pure joy because you love us so much. Teach us what it means to follow you in that. Teach us what it means to set aside our identity and our agenda, the, the things that, that we think should matter, the things that we think we should pursue and Help us to take up your dreams and your vision for our life so that we can glorify you with every breath and every second that we have. Speak to our hearts in this moment, God. Be real to us and remind us of who you are. And all that we pray in Jesus' name.